Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This episode of The Secret Library podcast is brought to you by Scrivener. Get 20% off the desktop software by using the code SECRET at literatureandlatte.com. This is episode 49. My guest today is Madeline Kent. She has taught playwriting, screenwriting, and theater at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts, and for the last 15 years, she has also implemented her techniques in theater work with the Obie Award-winning Soho Rep and her collaborations with non-actors, forming the innovative Shufu Theater. As a playwright and director, her work has also been presented at the New York Public Theater, New York Theater Workshop, PS122, and The Flea. For the last several years, she has been developing physical approaches to creativity, and this has led her to expand her teaching to the general public and to the development of sense writing. Together with a range of techniques gathered from around the world to enhance her work as a theater artist and teacher, Madeline now offers classes and coaching to anyone looking to discover new creative potentials. Sense writing has been taught at leading conservatories, retreat centers, and universities in the United States and abroad, including at NYU Tisch. New York's The Open Center, and Kripalu Yoga Retreat. So I was very excited to have Madeline on to talk about the connection between the body and writing. And we really go into ways you can explore um, opening up creativity through physical movement and other unique approaches that I think will help with anyone feeling stuck or looking for a different way to connect to your creative self. All right, here we go with Madeline. Hey, Madeline, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Caroline. So I was immediately excited and wanting to talk more to you because you've taught writing both in a well-known academic institution, NYU, and then have brought all of this awareness and knowledge of the body into the process of writing that you're now teaching. So can you say a little bit about what your journey has been with writing, sort of how you started out? I know you have background as a dancer, but... How was your relationship to writing, how has it evolved to the point where you're teaching it now? I know that's a big question, but just a little historical background, I guess. I was a playwright and director for many years. And while doing theater, I was very interested in the connection between language and the body. A lot of my plays played with language through silence and ruptures. And I was curious about what actors do in those silence and ruptures that are not psychological, where they have to go to a place that's not informed by subtext in the Stanislavski traditional Western psychological approach. So I, I, I 
and also the text that I was working on didn't lend it. Eventually, because I was working in derived theater with people who are working, who are speaking um, in in not their native language, so the texts were very broken and beautiful. And I felt said something more about how we construct relationships and how we construct identity than simply psychological. So I was I was looking at how to how how to direct the actors and where to go in those moments of silences and ruptures. And um, in my own work, I or in my own practice for myself, I was studying buto, Japanese buto, um, which is a form of dance that. Um, came about after World War II as a response or reaction against the Americas or the westernization of Japanese culture after um, the war. And it's very non-technical, very sense-based, very internal. And that was a that was the tool that I used uh, with the actors to give them a place often, well, very, very internal but and shared, but often invisible, but felt to the audience of where to go when language falls away. When, where to go even when identity falls away. So I was always very curious about the, in, the intersection between identity, language, and the body. And I, and I was always integrating some kind of sense-based writing, movement, a little bit of movement into my writing classes. At some point, I left New York and left my job at NYU and left theater, I have to say, and went to study something called Feldenkrais, which is a somatic-based, I guess it works with movement, but it works with movement in order to change the brain. And the guy who invented it many decades ago was named Moshe Feldenkrais, and he was one of the pioneers of what we call neuroplasticity. So <laughs> these are all, you know, very over overarching subjects. So I started studying Feldenkrais, and I was immediately struck by very obvious overlaps between how we were learning how to work with the nervous system so I would and and also the creative process so what was happening in that studio as all of us were rolling around and doing these sequences these exercises I realized it was the same exact thing that I would do in my writing class with students or for myself as a writer or working with actors as a director is we were all learning how to get out of our own way and um and really allowing the smarter part of us to do something. And, and so some of the connections were very obvious in the beginning. And after I finished my training, I went back to New York and started teaching uninstitutionalized writing in independent workshops. And quite organically, from the writing sequences that I had been teaching for years and years, I started to really note, note notice the similarities between the Feldenkrais method. And I started to just very spontaneously and organically ask students to do some movement that mirrored the sequence that they had just done. So that's when the merging and that's when the mirroring, it's really more of a merging I see because there, it's not a metaphor, one's not a metaphor for the other, it's, they're the same thing. So I, that's when I started to integrate the writing and the movement. Um, into this flow of uh, this sort of this ebb and flow between the sequences and yeah so that's when it came about and and from there honestly so it's been about four and a half five years I really see that the overlaps as I continue to teach I have three levels I have students who've been taking the class for years 
So I'm always coming up with new sequences. So in, as far as sense writing, there's over 100 movement and writing sequences that we do that it's really infinite. There's infinite ways that we can connect the writing and the movement that give us more access points into our creative flow and very specific access points. So, so can you describe what one of the sequences would look like? How someone might practice a sequence? Sure. Well, Feldenkrais, first of all, isn't very well known. And a lot of neuroplastic techniques that are just becoming mainstream aren't very known. And I just wanted to, to step backwards a little bit and maybe talk about that a little bit because yeah, of course. it's a little bit elusive to try to explain in the beginning. So neuroplasticity is the belief, or it's, the, it's that the brain can change. The brain is plastic. It's not fixed in this way that we've mapped it. And that if you lose, it used to be thought that if you lost there one part of the brain, one location was injured, either in utero or after, that that function was lost. And whatever gains could be made were painstaking, disheartening, or miraculous. Then 40, 50 years ago, the pioneers of neuroplasticity started to play. They started to experiment, and they found that parts of the brain can be commandeered, I guess, and, and rewired to, so if one part of the brain was not functioning or, or that function was diminished because one part of the brain, that location was injured, you can actually take another part of the brain and start to build new pathways. Feldenkrais was one of the pioneers of neuroplasticity. He's considered one of the, the godfathers of neuroplasticity. Um, and a lot of those people were working on the margins and and just as science works, it takes a long, you know, it's a belief system that and take, things take a long time to become mainstream. And so only now are these incredible and remarkable um, ways of healing, they're becoming part of mainstream rehabilitation. If you want to read about them, they're amazing case studies in Norman Doidge. He writes, he has two books on, on neuroplasticity that are amazing. And he, is, and he writes also about Feldenkrais in his last one. So the movements of Feldenkrais take us back to these small, slow movements that we did developmentally. So when we were learning how to differentiate our fingers from one another, so we weren't moving like a, I don't know, is this a... Like a mitten? Kind of like a, yeah, a mitten, or I think sometimes of like a sea creature, or a... a uh or something like that, that we start to differentiate our fingers, right? So or we start to yeah, differentiate movement as we get older, that we start to, as a baby, we, we learn how to roll over or we learn how to crawl or stand by something that is not being taught to us explicitly and from the outside. It's something that we just know. We're following something and pleasant, supportive environment helps, but it's this relationship that we have with our own nervous system. We experiment, we try again, we reverse a movement, we try again, and you don't ever really see a baby sweating <laughs> <laughs> and really gritting their teeth to try to like, oh, I'm going to make it. I'll yeah, I'm going to do my crunches. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, they're experimenting with movement and they're ro- and then they, and they roll over and there's some sense of joy and completion in that. And, then they try it again. And this is 
what he went back to in terms of learning, that the best kind of learning takes place in this slow, in slow, small ways like this with high awareness that, and this sort of intricate relationship with the nervous system. And that when we have this intricate, intimate relationship with the nervous system and we're playing like this, we can learn. Our nervous system can actually absorb. And so by taking us back to this small movement, that's we're learning how to move again. And that there are patterns that we've gathered through just living and trying to survive where actually differentiation stops and we sort of go backwards and we're in our patterns and habits of movement, that starts to give us, you know, his, the Feldenkrais gives us new patterns, new movements. And, you know, in the field, we're treating people with cerebral palsy, strokes, in ways that are, are working with the nervous system, that using movement to change the brain and pathways. So the movements are small and slow. So, for example, and this is something that is, is done in, in rehabilitation now, and uh, Norman Doidge writes about it. In, in both his first and second book, it's constraint-induced therapy. It's when you put a constraint on something to allow something that's a little bit weaker to come out, a little bit that, that has been whispering and not being listened to by the system to come out. So Feldenkrais uses constraints a lot in his movement that by not going to your fullest, something else is allowed to happen. By not efforting, something else is allowed to happen. So a specific example would be to turn, but to not use your neck. So what happens when you sit and you try to rotate your body without using your neck, you'll notice that other, there's a different kind of patterning that happens in your spine. There's a different kind of, and if you do it really slowly, you'll notice not just that there is a difference, but you'll understand and start to notice where in the spine the rotation's happening, how it's affecting your sits bones, the back of your legs, your feet, how your eyes might move differently in your head. And all of these large and small things are, are being able to be absorbed by the nervous system, giving the nervous system new information. Usually we walk around moving our neck rotating using our neck and we overuse and we get into habits and that's from like a survivalist place of like all of our survival senses are in our face right and we're walking around you know in our stress response usually and um the stakes are high <laughs> and we're looking for things so what happens when we give the nervous system a chance to rest and we give it small, refined information again, just like way back, to absorb. So that's, for example, there's a sequence. And I just want to say, I'm really simplifying. Feldenkrais was a pioneer of neuroplasticity, but he was also a pioneer of systems theories and, and system theory and complexity theory. So everything I'm saying is, being, is very reductive. So a simple... Example would be a 20-minute Feldenkrais where we would explore what, would, what does rotation feel like when we don't use the neck, especially the tough cervical vertebra. So then we take that idea of, and then, we, and then we experiment with that. And then we just go back to functional movement. We walk around, we move our, we turn by using our necks too, but then we 
find that all this small detail has come out of the woodwork because we quieted things down and we turned up the listening, that all this other stuff was able to come and support us in our functional ability to turn in a comfortable, easy way. What I do is I take that idea of, so we, we, we gain freedom, we gain choice, we gain agility. And what I do then is I, because I was using constraints for a decade and a half, a decade and a half before I studied Feldenkrais, I started making connections. So we'll, we'll do a 20 minute movement sequence and then we'll do a writing sequence that does the same thing with constraints with writing. And that's, it has a long tradition of, of, of in writing. So that's just one of the very simple examples. And that's the first principle of sense writing and it's constraint and freedom. And that's what we, we investigate from all these different points of access and generate a lot of writing in doing so. And it's really about getting, reconnecting to I say reconnecting to a place of ease and flow that we all that we know that it's there. We we feel like it's there. We want it to be there. So yeah. So, what tends to bring people in to the workshop, and what do you see them getting tripped up by? And then what starts to happen once they start doing these sequences? We're in without knowing it. We're in a little bit elevated, and some of us more than others stress response, anxiety, and I, and writing for some reason, and there's people have written about this and there are classes about this and that, that it produces a lot of pressure and it, and it can produce a lot of anxiety. And part of me working and bringing flow and ease or helping people learn to work with their own nervous system to do this for themselves is I've just, you know, that realizing that Writing classes, and I know this in my own MFA experience and when I taught, they don't emphasize process, right? We emphasize product. And product, we do this kind of through craft, right? And we bring in things and we worship things, but people don't really elucidate process because we're all supposed to come to that in our own and this assumption, and, and we do, and we, and we do, and we don't. And... Sense writing emphasizes process, and in that, you find your own very specific process by experimenting. But in emphasizing process, we get to craft anyway, and the product happens. So by putting product almost last, much more is generated, and there's intrinsic structure and craft to that product. But because process and the how becomes more important than the what, it allows people to, to engage and not worry about writing something important or beautiful. I had a student who said, you know, when you think about writing, and she's a, a very successful copywriter, so when you think about writing something beautiful or important, it just cripples your inner fingers. So this sets up, these sequences set up so much how that we're just so engaged with the how and the beauty of something unfolding and, and the connections between movement and sense and emotion and thought and the connections that we make even in terms of because sometimes in class we'll read an article about neuroplasticity. So we're making, we're, we're, we're engaged on so many levels that oops, 
I've written something beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just ha- it's this byproduct from a process. I think that's such a relief because one of the things I've been sort of playing with lately is this concept that I think really mirrors the idea of what you're talking about, that we fetishize product in a way in the society is also this, um, I read the book Mindset. I don't know if you've read that one, but it's about fixed mindset versus growth mindset. And a lot in our society is like, oh, you either know how to do something or you don't. And I think of it as, oh, you have talent or you don't. And every time you try it and it isn't amazing what comes out, that's just evidence that you're not good at it rather than you're just experimenting and you can learn. And we're all so, I think, inundated with this that I wonder if that leads to product. Like if I don't have a product right away, then I got to get out of this writing thing because, you know, I'm clearly not cut out for it. Right. There's, there's so much that's what, that's in what you just said and so many layers of who's the expert, right? How are, how, you know, how are workshops being sold? What are we waiting for in terms of praise? All of these things. And why, why do we come to writing in the first place? You know, so one of the things that we do in sense writing is we really bring curiosity and pleasure to the intention, to to what we do. And then small movements that look really like, why are we doing this movement? We end up just being curious about because it does elicit so much curiosity, like some internal landscape has been lit up. And if we can have curiosity and pleasure and discovery in that, then we can have curiosity and pleasure and discovery in any in on all these other levels that we're, we are in, in in this creative process. And so our motivation becomes ease, com- becomes pleasure, becomes curiosity and discovery rather than look at me, I'm talented. And then it becomes all this other stuff. But it's really, and, and on a nervous system level, we're, and what Feldenkrais and the, these other modalities that I've studied since is teaching you how to find creative flow from a parasympathetic state. And that's different that I won't get so into it, but it's different than the kind of creativity that we get from a sympathetic state. The sympath, you know, when we're in a sympathetic state, we have to perform. Something's happening. You know, there's struggle, but there can be a lot of creative output. And that's what we sometimes get used to. That's our habit a little bit sometimes. On, and, that, and that doesn't really facilitate learning. But if we get ourselves into a parasympathetic state, it's not just about going with the flow of that. It's about really engaging creatively and getting ourselves in a parasympathetic state generating incredibly intricate and subjective and and our voice kind of writing. And then the learning happens because we're in a parasympathetic state. Learning can't really happen when we're in a stress response. And I think, but creativity can. So sometimes we can mistake this creative, like a creative state that we're in as an, as an almost open state. And it's, and it's kind of open, but it's also we're in a little bit of a high stress response and it's really not sustainable. And in my own life, I was really looking at what's a sustainable creative process. What's 
a sustainable creative process for my peers because a lot of them were hitting walls and what's a creative sustainable process for my students just being responsible and I think it really echoes what you were talking about in terms of a fixed mindset or an open growth mindset because sustainability open only happens in this growth mode where we're in this state where we can actually learn where this these changes and shifts, and if you want to see it as you know, neuroplasticity can happen. Yeah, it seems like there's so much fear around creativity. And I hear all of this, um, all these people all the time are like, oh, writing is so hard. It's so hard. Like, and it feels, you know, people talk about like grinding it out and it not being such a joyful process, but it's like, well, you just got to sit down and do it kind of thing. And there's such a relief in how you're describing it, kind of opening up to just the flow of the writing itself and being able to enjoy that and not be so um, wedded to the outcome. Because I think product can be as small as I want this next sentence to be really good. It isn't just I'm going to write the perfect play or I'm going to write a book that's going to get sold immediately. It could just be as small as picking the right word and putting that pressure Right, so you're you're kind of not breathing at each moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's also amazing is because if you're working on different levels and not just the writing level, but if you're also working with your body and movement and this, that you learn how ease or doing less in this movement, how your your nervous system makes connections without you. You just have to give them it a little bit of information. It does. That's the creative process, right? You know, you just do a little and then something, all these connections are made. This is what, how the nervous system works. There's so many overlaps between how the nervous system works and what an, how an artist works when they're in flow, sustainable flow. So this working on different levels besides just the writing allows people to gain trust in this process. And that even though it's not linear and that it's somehow sequence it's not predictable or it's still somehow mysterious that it's really about trusting the process and and the grind that you talk about is about not trusting and and willing things and efforting and really coming smack up against your own you know will and and um what's really beautiful about Anything that works with the nervous system is that the nervous system is never going to do what you tell it to do. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so that, and we know this, like people can be let go, just relax, let it go. And you're just like, oh, what are you talking about? Let it go. go. What are you talking about? (laughs) Right? Because the nervous system has been around for millions of years. It knows what it's doing. You just, you have to learn how to dance with it. And it's, it's sort of, you have to beckon it and you have to seduce it and you have to support it and dance with it. And these, if you read the case studies in Norman Doidge's book, you read about the most sensitive and beautiful collaborations between clinicians and patients that's happening. And it's really not what we think about as Western science with the object and the subject and the delineation. It's these really beautiful collaborations that are happening. And People are learning how to dance with the nervous system. They, it's not this kind of mechanism, re, mechanistic, reductive science that we're used to. And incredible results are happening. So when you read these case studies, 
They all, for me, they remind me of the creative process because you can't force it. You can't, you know, and people know that and they, enforce, you know, and then we go to other things like, you know, drugs or other stuff that helps us go around ourselves. But I'm saying, but there are other ways when we really look at how the nervous system works and we learn how to trust that, that we can learn from that and bring it into our creative practice. Let's take a moment to talk about Scrivener, the sponsor of the show. As we're talking about using movement and unique approaches to getting in touch with your creativity, you'll be pleased to know that Scrivener doesn't just have templates available for fiction, nonfiction, and screenwriting, but that there are also poetry and lyrics templates, as well as a blank template you can use however you would like and miscellaneous. So there are ways to change the form of your writing beyond something that's preset, like a novel or a short story. You can even break those down, but you can customize the format to something that suits you as you're discovering new options. So for anyone looking for something flexible, it's got your back. You can check out the software at literatureandlatte.com. And remember, you can get 20% off the desktop version by using the code SECRET. Okay, let's get back to Madeline. Do you find that it's hard for people or that they have to make some kind of mindset adjustment? Because I think there is this almost sense of ego or ownership, I could imagine, that's like, well, I did it when I wrote it this way. But if I kind of trust this nervous system and these connections are coming, like, how do I know that's me? And how do I know I'm writing it? It's totally hard. Yeah. It's totally, because this is also part of the suffering or the struggling that we get to do as artists. And, you know, at least we have that. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of other stuff, but in our society, at least we have that, where the, the romantic notion of I struggle and I work hard. And we do. We do. There's, I'm not saying that we don't effort. But, but if, you know, effort and pleasure meet, where those two meet, there's discovery. So I'm not saying there's absolutely no effort. But, you know, the line, at the edge of effort and pleasure, there's that discovery. Without that pleasure, without that sense of trust, we're not really discovering and it, we're really pushing and muscling. And yeah, we're really connected to these, this idea of hard-won talent and, and, and it feeds into a lot of things, ambition and competition. And the people who come to me, I think at some point, they're coming to me in my workshops and because they've experienced some level of burnout. As artists, as filmmakers, I work with really brilliant people who are working in crisis areas as humanitarian workers too of of there's and this and the sense of burnout is something that I really respect <laughs> so having the people who come to me who have experienced burnout I really I do respect because it's a it's a state that I understand it's a state that we we know that something more sustainable and pleasurable is out there and and going through the process of not just letting go but cuz someone told you to let go but that that these are specific sequences that are actually getting me closer to a process that no matter how close I get to is still going to remain mysterious you know so it's almost like trusting that 
allowing the nervous system to work in a different way and not trying to do everything from kind of like a conscious, willful place is is a way to do creative work. And it's a way that maybe feels scary because it's not like, well, I have my little system and I can repeat it every time, but that you're not going to burn out. And therefore it's just a new system. Yeah, it's a new system. And because it plugs into the way your nervous system really regulates and the stages where it feel it has sensation, it regulates, it relaxes, it differentiates and learns and, and spirals through those stages, then you're caught up with that how. It really allows a lot of agility. It really allows a lot of personal intimacy and, and, a, and, and an ability to create your own process from, from the sequences and from what you, just the knowledge that you gain. So um, it's really about getting out of your habits, you know, and investigating other ways of, towards, of motivation that are more, like you said, sustainable. So can you share an example of, of someone who's been through this process or even like a typical sort of scenario? Maybe there aren't any typical scenarios, but somebody who started out burned out Mm-hmm. And then ended up finding a new way just to concretize this shift. Yeah, I can I can do two. I can give two examples. Um, Great. That are related. So one is that I I work with the African refugee community in Tel Aviv or in Israel, and for many many years. And what I noticed is that because there's no refugee status determination process in the country. So they're given these weak blanket, uh, blanketed protective status. So all Darfurians or all Sudanese are protected, but they're not really, they don't as individuals go through an RSD status, which means nobody listens to each one of their stories and says yes or no. So what happened years ago because of this is that the that NGOs, really grassroots NGOs, really incredible, incredible mm-hmm. NGOs, started working with people in, in helping, uh, just in a, and, and then training people within the community to, to how how do you express your refugee story? So I was, you know, so people got very very good at expressing their refugee story to show that they were a refugee because they were fighting for that status, the ability to to go through an RSD process. I am a refugee, I was, you know, and then, you know, I was here, I was in Darfur, the Janjaweed came, this is what happened to me. Because I I was working at the time, I had started a theater group with um, refugees there, and I, what I know, and and it was a very close group of people, and and just Americans, Israelis, Africans, working, you know, just doing theater together. What I noticed is that other stories were being lost, the more the the stories that were that were they were just people. The stories around the refugee story, the stories of before the refugee story. And when I left Israel and came back to New York, because I went to Israel for the Feldenkrais training, after I was done and coming, and I came back to New York, and that's when sense writing started to um, emerge. I would go back to to Israel and have workshops with African refugees and part of it was that I wanted them to be able to go through these you know 
movement and writing sequences, their nervous system. Sometimes I went to the, there was a huge, I think one of the hugest detention centers in the world was in the desert and we held a workshop there. And it was to really let the other stories start to emerge. And that's an example of the habits that we get into when we tell our stories. This is my story. This is my story. And if you really think about it, we always have those habits. We have stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves over and over again, unconsciously, consciously, stories that we tell our friends over and over again. So this is a way of how do you find these new ways of telling your story. So we're finding new habits and patterns, not just with movement, but with thoughts, sensations, feelings, syntax, language. So other stories were allowed or, or emerged from this. Also, there are you know, stories that were part of what they experienced when they had to leave and escape. Um, and a specific ex example, let's say, I've had many students I'm, I'm, I'm saying specific in many, um, but really that <laughs> that this is really a composite that where they've been writing for years, where they have many, many pages, but they, it sort of is like they're repeating and spiraling through and, and it's feeling flat. And they start with sense writing and they start to write in just a different way. And that they really get to something deeper in a story and they start to just write every day. I've had students who've taken one workshop with me and then finish a book. And then, and, and that's, and they really, like they, for some reason, something sets them off and for months they're just writing. There's also, and, and I was gonna go back to this, this other student that I had where it's a composite that these students often, after they take Sense Writing 1, 2, and 3, or they're repeating courses, they end up, going into MFA programs. So I have a lot of students all over the country right now in masters in journalism or MFA programs. But there's also a lot of people who have never written before. And they feel this, you know, I think part of the urge to write is to get intimate and, and allow this, our landscapes, our internal landscapes to start to soften and for these things and, and different things to start to emerge and for us to have choices in, in how we tell our stories and how we see ourselves to, to complete a fuller picture of ourselves. And I think that's like, that's kind of like the part of, part of the urge, like, but, but we don't know where to start. So there's been a lot of people who come in and they have felt the desire to, to write but they never have, and then they, they'll come, and then they'll, you know, we just, gen that's all we do is generate writing in the workshops, and then it continues. I've, and, in, and another interesting example is many people come with a specific idea in mind, and it, and it could be, let's say, around trauma, but they find that once they start, they're writing around it, and then they, and then once they go back into that trauma it's already changed because their whole landscape has changed so and that's really a beautiful thing about these this work with the nervous system is that if you don't go directly into that hard soil in the landscape 
it will soften anyway and come out eventually in shifted and changed but it will soften because we're tilling the landscape in other places yeah i wondered i wondered if people who had ideas their ideas changed throughout doing the process like i want to write a book about this or i want to write a play about this and then suddenly they've done this work and found something else entirely while they were in the process i think a, the general a general um path is is sort of there if they want you know and then they'll end up but they'll end up there in a completely circuitous route and that is also a beautiful thing about the creative process it's like if we try to get there linearly it's gonna keep it's we're not gonna it's not gonna happen it's like what you talked about the grind and the but if we take a more circuitous route we're gonna. We might end up in that same place, but then a lot of the work will have been done, and the connections will be be made. And I just the an example that I use, and that people end up feeling in the in the movement that they do in the Feldenkrais is that when a Feldenkrais practitioner is working with somebody with cerebral palsy, they're walking with their shoulder up um, near their ear, and we've seen that in our lives, or somebody. Um, walking down the street with a, with a spasm. And this is caused because, and because the nervous system did the best it could. And while the person was in utero, there was not enough oxygen perhaps, and this is what happened. So traditional therapy will take that, if we think about a writer's block as well, We'll take that and we'll try to straighten that shoulder and elongate the muscle and, and massage into it. And a Feldenkrais practitioner will instead lift the elbow so the contraction is even more. And that the brain thinks, oh, wait, I don't have to hold that contraction anymore. Oh, what can I do? And then it has all this, the noise is lowered. And has all this other attention for other things. So maybe the Feldenkrais practitioner will then start to give some information to the sole of a foot. And send some movement through the foot, through the leg, through the hip, to the opposite shoulder from the one that's contracted. And the opposite shoulder through the ribcage to the one that's contracted. So, And then movement will happen. So we've just taken by giving the nervous system support and saying, you know what, nervous system, you are doing the right thing. So many times our blocks, our creative blocks, aren't because we're doing the wrong thing, we just need to go in there and grind our way you know, through it. It's that we maybe don't. And if we're giving our nervous system the support to just rest in it and we focus on something else, that by going around it, that this other thing will loosen and that that soil will start to be tilled and th- growth will happen and change will happen there eventually. Yeah. I I had this image as you were talking that in some ways cliche is that in writing. It's like trying to get from, from one point to the other in a really linear, quick fashion that's very efficient. Like I, I you know, I'm going to describe this really efficiently, but it, it's, it feels... Uh, it doesn't feel satisfying to, to the exact, writer or the reader. It's exactly it. It's exactly it. Yeah, that's what cliche is. 
it's yeah our habitual sequence we we think we're it's but there's a gap and we know that there's a gap between what we really feel like on a visceral language level if they were married there was really if they were really connecting to we know that there's a gap but that's exactly it cliche is just formed out of and i think that's why language and writing is so um there's so much possibility for blocks because we use it every day it's used to not tell the truth. It's used to hide. It's you know it's used for all these different reasons. So we we're in these cultural patterns of talking, and we're in personal patterns of using language that that are habitual and keep us from, as I think Leonard Cohen said in an, in an article uh, in an interview that he was talking about slogans. These very beautiful you know admirable admirable slogans. And when they start to come out of him, he just keeps going until there's, you know, the deeper longings of his heart are start coming out instead. Yeah, that's, I think that's so important because I, I can see two things happening here are you're giving the nervous system a different experience and, and sort of teaching it, okay, it's safe to go kind of off the beaten path a little bit. And it's because I think there is a lot of fear that could come up like, oh, I'm not, uh, where am I going? I'm talking about, you know, banana trees or something wild that I didn't even think about. Is this crazy? You know, but if you sort of have the experience in the body of like, okay, we'll get back around and it's okay to explore this way, then I can see it being much easier to follow that same path in writing. Right. And the truth is me meaning accumulates from that process. If we try to impose meaning onto something, it's meaningless. Meaning can only accumulate from the process you just, ex, you know, ex, like the banana tree or whatever, and then and then it's coming back. Like it, meaning can only surprise us from the accumulation of surprise. It can't really be imposed because then we're forcing something. Yeah, because then you have experiences like this is something. This is a piece about blank or. I was thinking earlier as you were talking this concept of saying like, I'm the kind of person who blah, like you've decided this is the story either about yourself or about what you're writing and getting away from that maybe allows you to find something else entirely. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's getting away from the thoughts you think you should be thinking that way. Yeah. Which, which makes right again, writing, that's why writing's difficult because we're in that on that cognitive level, you know, but but language is a very thin part of our brain, but we're just so stuck. There's a whole ocean underneath. And if we sort of just let ourselves step into that ocean and and feel it and and trust it, then sort of the language emerges can emerge and from there there's deeper structures. Amazing. This has been amazing to talk to you about this and I'm so grateful that we We've been able to have this conversation and thank you so much for, for talking to me about this. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the secret library podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue and Frederick Barry McWilliams, Jr. My tireless audio engineer to get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.